If you are a Christian, a seeker, an atheist, or an agnostic, this Differing Things podcast is for you. What the Bible actually says and what you have heard preached might be surprisingly different. Dr. Bill Petrie will ask you to consider the possibility that God is more loving and good than you ever imagined. Please bear with me today. I want to talk about a topic I feel very passionate about. I want to spend some time talking about the salvation of all humanity. I am confident that many people will be tempted to reject what is said in this edition of Differing Things out of hand without even considering it because they will make certain assumptions about it that they think they can easily tear down. It is common in debates to see this kind of tactic in which one person describes a caricature of the other person's argument and then tears that down rather than the actual argument. This is known as the straw man fallacy and is defined as follows. The straw man is defined by Google an intentionally misrepresented proposition that is set up because it is easier to defeat than an opponent's real argument. So I'm going to make a preemptive attack on potential straw men so that you will not attack irrelevant premises that are not part of the argument. With that said, here is what I am not saying. First, I am not saying that all religions are the same and lead to God. This is clearly ridiculous, as different religions espouse different beliefs. If they did not, they would not be different religions. This is not to say that other religions do not have any truth in them, because they clearly do. For example, many of the moral beliefs of other religions are very similar, if not identical, to Christian moral beliefs. If those moral beliefs were not true, then the Christian moral beliefs could not be either, logically. All this to say, even if it does seem unnecessary and silly, different religions are different. Second, <clears throat> I am not saying that there is any other way to the Father besides Jesus Christ. Consider the following Bible verse, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That seems straightforward. Nevertheless, there is some question as to how people come to the Father through Christ. That is what we will be addressing later on in this podcast. Third, I am not saying that there is no judgment. The Bible clearly teaches that there will be judgment. I will be arguing that the traditional doctrine of hell misunderstands this judgment. Fourth, 
I am not saying that God's judgment will not be serious or severe. I have read that God's judgment, and there is nothing about the language used that suggests it is not very, very serious. Fifth, I am not saying that sin is no big deal or that behaviors described as sinful in the Bible are okay. The Bible clearly paints a picture of sin is incredibly destructive and awful. I think this is undeniable scripturally. If anything, I am saying that sin should be taken more seriously, especially by believers. I am not saying, my sixth point, I am not saying that I just do not like the doctrine of hell emotionally and trying to fit the Bible to my feelings. Many people who will oppose my discussion today would like to set up this straw man to discredit the motivations and scholarship of this show. This is a mischaracterization of the argument. As you will see, this is not an emotional argument. It is a logical and most importantly, scriptural argument. I would challenge those who claim otherwise to be honest in their reading without applying theological constructs to the plain meanings of the text. Read the Bible and use it to interpret the Bible. Do not read a biased commentary to form your interpretation, and you will see that the view I am presenting is highly scriptural and incredibly consistent. Now that I have dispensed with the straw men, let us examine the biblical evidence for the salvation of all people through judgment. Throughout the Bible, it can be clearly seen that God's judgments are purposeful and redemptive. Although for the sake of time, I will not cover every instance of God's judgment in the Bible. The examples that I will give are highly illustrative and representative of this concept. I will even use some of the most common English Bible versions to make this really apparent to you. This will be significant because these translations consistently mistranslate certain words to create a bias. Let's begin with the story of Noah's Ark. The story of Noah's Ark is one of the earliest instances of judgment recorded in the Bible. In it, God floods the earth for good reason. Genesis 6-5 states, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I do not know about you, but I do not think the world would have been a great place to live if people only had evil on their minds all the time. Picture the most brutal, vile government that you can imagine in modern or ancient history. Would not God be right to judge and put an end to such a regime? 
Do not we often wonder why he does not stop the evil in the world? Well, in Noah's day, he did. And here is the remarkable part. Even this judgment was redemptive, as explained in the book of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, in the ESV, we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What? Even those men who were so wicked that they only thought evil thoughts all the time were preached to by Jesus. Why? Was it just to mock them because they had no hope of escaping hell? No. Instead, we see Jesus' purpose in proclaiming to these captives in Isaiah 61.1 and Luke chapter 4, verse 18. They say he was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is confirmed in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, which states that this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So in Noah's day, God judged evil temporarily in order to purify the world, benefiting mankind, and offers redemption in Christ even to the evil men that were judged post-mortem. This is incredible grace and mercy within his judgment. I think this is one reason why Paul exclaims, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Our second judgment that I want to look at tonight <clears throat> is Sodom and Gomorrah. This is certainly one of the most famous examples of God's judgment in the Bible, in which he rained down, rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, according to Genesis 19 and verse 24. Some are critical of such judgments, saying that they show that God does not really care for people. I believe this conclusion is false. Rather, it is because of his love for humanity that God does judge evil. Otherwise, the world would be unbearably dark and terrible. And make no mistake, Sodom was evil. Genesis 19 verses 4 through 9 state that before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? 
bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my, no, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But do not do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. Now, I do not know about you, but I hope I never end up in a city that is so wicked that every man is obsessively intent on gang rape. That is a scary place. Also notice that the corruption was so pervasive in the city that a even Abraham's nephew, Lot, <clears throat> the one considered righteous enough to not be destroyed, offered up his own daughters to be raped by these men rather than have them rape his guests. In case you aren't sure, that is also very, very, very evil. So even the most righteous man there was, not really a model citizen, far from it. <clears throat> so God destroyed Sodom and its wickedness. But again, we see something remarkable, something surprising, something unbelievable. God even redeems Sodom. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 53 through 55, in the New English translation, we read, I will restore their fortunes, the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, along with your fortunes among them so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you have done in consoling them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters will be restored to their former status. Samaria and her daughters will be restored to their former status. And you and your daughters will, re will be restored to your former status. How is this even possible? Was not Sodom utterly destroyed? According to the biblical account, it was. Yet Ezekiel, writing many hundreds of years later, is speaking of Sodom's restoration. This can only be referring to an ultimate restoration in the future. I believe it is referring to restoration after Sodom's judgment by Christ. Jesus also referenced Sodom, saying that it would fare better than the Jewish city of Capernaum on Judgment Day. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to the unseen. 
For if the miracles that were performed in you had, had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you, Matthew 11, verses 23 and 24 states. This judgment comes about in the book of Jude and is an example of the vengeance of eternal fire, as the King James Version states in Jude, verse 7. Ezekiel 16, verses 53 through 55, redefines what eternal punishment is suggested by the non-biblical doctrine of hell. Instead, the correction experienced will be determined according to their deeds as stated throughout the Bible and will ultimately lead to restoration even for a place like Sodom. Ezekiel 16 also shows us that most English Bibles have mistranslated the Hebrew word olam and the Greek aeon words to mean endless. The Bible throughout its pages clearly defines these words as a duration of time. The Bible student would be much better off if they used a Bible that actually translated these words correctly, such as the Universal Version Bible, the Concordant Literal Bible, the Young's Literal Translation, and the Rotherham's Emphasized Bible just to name a few. Let, let's next look at the plagues of Egypt. In the plagues of Egypt, we see another explanation for the purpose of God's judgment that is reiterated many times in Scripture. His judgments cause humanity to come to know him and proclaim him. In Exodus chapter 9, Verses 13 through 17, we read the following. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, now pay attention, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Judgment is a way for God to get through to us. Some of us, perhaps all of us, are like Pharaoh, hard-hearted and thick-headed. We need to see God's awesome power, sometimes in the form of judgment, before we are willing to humbly acknowledge who we are 
in relation to who he is. And because he loves us and wants us all to repent, he does what needs to be done so that all will hear of his greatness and goodness and eventually understand. The story of Jonah and Nineveh. The story of Jonah is not really about a big fish. It is about a prophet who did not understand God's will to save all people and how God showed his will to him. <clears throat> you see, Jonah did not want the people of Nineveh to be saved because they were wicked. In fact, he was angry that they were given the opportunity to repent and even angrier that they took it. He was so angry that he had a temper tantrum about it. This is what is said of Jonah immediately after Nineveh's repentance and salvation from temporal judgment. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, state the following. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. <clears throat> the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? There are several really interesting things about this passage. The first being Jonah's anger instead of rejoicing at repentance. I believe this shows how far his heart was from God's in this matter. Jesus said, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's Luke 15, 7. Obviously, this is very different from Jonah's attitude. Another interesting aspect of the passage is that Jonah explains his reasoning for fleeing to Tarshish rather than obeying God and preaching to Nineveh. He did not want the people of Nineveh to be saved, and he knew that God would save them because he is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Again, we see God's character and desire to save. Jonah understood God's character well, but he wanted vengeance, not mercy. This is a key difference between humanity and God, and another reason why the doctrine of hell has all the hallmarks of being man-made rather than God-inspired. Man is the one who seeks revenge. Now, even though Jonah is thinking wickedly and unmercifully, God shows him mercy 
by causing a plant to grow nearby to give him shade. Jonah is overjoyed. It sounds really over the top in the passage about the plant, but God is not content to just give Jonah some physical comfort. Instead, he uses the plant to expose both the pride and wickedness in Jonah's heart, as well as the great love found in his own. He does this by causing the plant to die via a worm. When it dies, Jonah goes back to his ridiculously melodramatic pouting, begging with all his soul to die, according to Jonah 4.8. It's verses 9 and 11 of chapter 4 in Jonah that I want to quote here. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant, for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? What does this tell us about God? It tells us that he is compassionate, even to those that we consider unredeemable. He forgives those that we say are unforgivable. He loves those that we believe to be unlovable. He wills to save, and he will do it, in spite of the resistance of the proud religious mindset. Then we have the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon, but he was not a very nice guy. <clears throat> he threw men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into a fiery furnace for not worshiping a statue he had set up. He destroyed Jerusalem. He was arrogant, entitled, and brutal. So God warned him in a dream of his impending judgment. Daniel interpreted the dream for the king and offered him some wise advice, which was not heeded. Let me read the whole story now, beginning with Daniel's sage counsel. <clears throat> we read in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verses 27 through 37. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. 
and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. Then his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives to the eons. For his dominion is in Eonian dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. There are several things to notice about this passage. First, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is warned of his impending judgment, but in his pride does not repent. Second, we see that he is judged severely, seven years of grass-eating madness. Third, and most importantly, we see the result of the judgment. He was humbled and acknowledged God. He learned to praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he, the King of Heaven, is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar learned through judgment to confess allegiance and bow his knee to the one true God. Just as the Bible says that every person will do. Just read Isaiah 45, 23. Romans 14.11, and Philippians 2.10. This is the purpose of God's judgment. It humbles humanity so that humanity can be restored to him. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, according to James 4.6 and 1 Peter 5.5. 5. For many... This humbling happens during our lifetimes, but for others, they will be humbled 
at the last judgment. If you are objecting that this humbling through judgment cannot occur after death, I would challenge you to find a single Bible verse anywhere that says this to be true. I guarantee you will not find one. Let's look at the history of Israel, Judah, and other nations as a pattern for judgment. In the Old Testament, many of the events in Israel's history in the entire Bible are symbolic of greater truth. Abraham and Isaac point to the sacrificial system. The book of Hosea and Jonah in the belly of the fish and many of the prophecies that seem to have a historical fulfillment and a future one as well. Although I will not spend time on all of these now, it is clear that they all foreshadowed future events and give us deeper understanding of these events. It is wise to interpret passages in the Bible in light of other passages in the Bible with a great deal of foreshadowing being done in the Old Testament. With this in mind, we frequently see judgment of Israel, Judah, and other nations in the Old Testament. Some people mistakenly view God as a tyrant because of his Old Testament judgments. The stated goal of these judgments, however, is clear. They are meant to bring people back to God. Because there are so many verses dealing with this concept, <coughs> we will not exhaustively examine all of them. But the themes are consistent throughout. <coughs> Let's look at warning of judgment that precedes judgment. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Ezekiel 18.32 states, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Jeremiah 18.11 states, Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, This is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. Jeremiah 26.3, perhaps they will listen, and each will turn from their evil ways. Then I will relent and not inflict on them the disaster I was planning because of the evil they have done. God repeatedly warns the nation of judgment so that they might repent and turn from their evil ways. Notice also that God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repentance is the goal of judgment, but it is certainly better to repent now than wait for judgment 
The judgments on Judah and Israel carried out as the result of invasion and destruction by brutal foreign empires would have best been avoided. But people are often foolish. And we know that judgment did, in fact, occur. Notice, however, the results of God's judgment carried out. In Ezekiel 16, verse 42, we read, Then my wrath against you will subside, and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm and no longer angry. In this verse, God is saying that his wrath against his people is temporary, that it will subside after judgment is carried out. How contrary to the idea of eternal hell, and how compatible with the idea of the universal reconciliation of people. How compatible with the idea of the ultimate salvation of all of humanity. Zechariah 1.6 states, But did not my words and my decrees which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve just as he determined to do. Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 8 through 10 in the New International Version reads, But I will spare some, for some of you will escape the sword when you are scattered among the lands and nations. Then in the nations, where they have been carried captive, those who escape will remember me, how I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil they have done, and for all their detestable practices. And they will know that I am the Lord. I did not threaten in vain to bring this calamity on them. Let me repeat that 10th verse. And they will know that I am the Lord. I did not threaten in vain to bring this calamity on them. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 59 through 63, we read this. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve, because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an Eonian covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. When you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger, I will give them to you as daughters but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then will I make atonement for you, for all you have done. You will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. And Joel 2, verse 27 states this, Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, 
Never again will my people be shamed. Jeremiah 23, 20 states, the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purpose of his heart. In days to come, you will understand it clearly. Notice that in through of these judgments, God is making himself known to people. It is always purposeful. As I have discussed, his purpose is to save people. And it is well established throughout Scripture that this is his purpose. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, according to 2 Peter 3.9. He is judging people as they deserve to be judged. But this is never an eternal judgment or non-ending judgment. Rather, it is restorative. And he atones for all of their wrongdoings. It is humbling, causing the people to be ashamed. But even this shame is removed once restoration is complete. That's what those verses stated. Next, we will see that this purpose of restoration is true of other nations besides Israel and Judah as well. Isaiah 49, verse 26, referring to judgment of other nations, states this, Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Ezekiel 25 through 29, we see God judging several nations in this patent chapters, including Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. The purpose of these judgments in Ezekiel chapters 25 through 29 is repeated several times throughout these chapters. And we will read throughout it the following phrase. They will know that I am the Lord. The chapters conclude with the statement in verse 17. I will carry out great vengeance on them and punish them in my wrath. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I take vengeance on them. Notice here what it says, though. That they will know that he is the Lord after he judges them. We see a continuation of this shame in Ezekiel chapter 26 down through chapter 29 with the judgment of Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. For each of these nations, we see that judgment is carried out with a purpose stated by God repeatedly, that they will know that I am the Lord. It would be a grave mistake to take the vengeance described in these passages as purposeless retribution. There is clearly a restorative goal. The judgments are temporary and cause people to better know who God is, a God who saves and loves humanity. Without judgment, people would continue to ruin themselves. 
as Ecclesiastes 8.11 states, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Swift judgment is corrective. Look at the evils in the world. Do not we need correction? If you're a parent out there, have you ever had to give swift, corrective judgment to your child? Why did you do this? Was it to punish them endlessly? Or was it to give them a better understanding about the severity of something? To pass on certain character attributes to them? Did you stop loving them? Did you want them to continue in the evil? Or was the judgment when you gave it as a parent to your child intended to be intended to be something that would be able to be restorative, to allow your child to live better, to develop character? Judgment is something to rejoice about, is described in Psalm 98. Let me read Psalm 98 just so you can hear this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all its all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Notice the joy that his righteous judgment should bring and how it is linked to his salvation being made known to all the ends of the earth. Notice too, that his right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. He accomplishes his purposes by his power. It is not up to us. He will be victorious. And we have already studied the purpose that he will succeed at accomplishing. This salvation for all and unification of all things under his authority. This is truly good news that's worth sharing and rejoicing about. But what about the judgment and wrath of God in the New Testament? So far... I have only looked at examples of judgment in the Old Testament, and we have seen that they were always purposeful and lasted 
for a limited duration, eventually resulting in restoration. Does God change his pattern for justice in the New Testament and decide to punish people forever? This is an interesting question because the Old Testament does not teach a doctrine of everlasting punishment in hell. The only potential support for the idea would come in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. But, as I have shown earlier in this episode of Differing Things, and in a prior Differing Things podcast, the word translated everlasting is literally the Hebrew word olam or avalam is not translated accurately, and it refers to limited duration. With this understanding, let us look at some of the passages in the New Testament about judgment. John 3.16 through verse 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have Ionian life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 3:16 and 17 is one of the most beloved verses in all of the Bible because it shows the great love of God for humanity. We are told that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save it. Supporters of the doctrine of eternal punishment, however, say that this message of hope then takes a dark turn. They will say that the condemnation described for unbelievers is eternal hell. But this interpretation is clearly wrong. We know this because the passage tells us what the condemnation is. Read it again. And you will notice a couple of things. One, those who do not believe are condemned already. In other words, they are experiencing their judgment in the present. And they, in a place of eternal torment, uh, let me rephrase that. Are they in a place of eternal torment right now? And the answer is, obviously not. The judgment is that the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In other words, people are condemned to live in darkness until they come to belief in Christ, the light of the world. And many do not want to come to this light because of their own wickedness. So the judgment they experience is that God allows them 
to remain in it. The concept of judgment is further elucidated in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. We see that the wrath of God revealed in the passage is that God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to shameful lusts, to a deprived mind, because they refused to acknowledge him. It also says that they received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Notice the word received is in the past tense, showing that they have already experienced condemnation. This wrath is not a future eternal hellfire, but it is a present darkness. And once again, we see a purpose to God's wrath and judgment. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, Romans 11.32 states. Prior to belief, we were all condemned to darkness and disobedience. But God is not content to leave us in this state. He allows us to do what we want for a time so that he can have mercy on us and show us just how great and unfathomable his love really is. What about the final judgment? It is true that there is a final judgment described in the New Testament. We have seen, however, that the past passages referencing Gehenna, translated hell in some Bibles, may or may not be referring to this judgment. And again, this would be a passage or passages that we could look at at some future time. I want to look here at the book of Revelation in chapter 21 down through verses 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Notice that after judgment, let me repeat that, after judgment, we see a new heaven and a new earth. We see that God is making all 
things new. A complete restoration in process. We see the end of all pain and loss. We see that the new Jerusalem descending to earth. This refers to the born-again nation of Israel, God's covenant people, a beautiful picture of God's ultimate plan of redemption begins to emerge. But advocates of eternal punishment will be quick to point out that the following verses take a dark turn, away from the hope for the lost. I will not ignore these verses, as you might have expected. Instead, we will examine them carefully and see that hope, in fact, remains for his mercy endures Ionian. Psalm 136 says so 26 times alone. Revelation chapter 21 verses 7 and 8 states this, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Hellfire advocates at this point are going to say, see, I told you all those evil people will burn. But let us remember that we are those evil people, as Jesus pointed out when he clarified the law as pertaining to the state of the heart, saying that if we have lusted, we have committed adultery. If we have hated, we have committed murder. God's standard is much higher than our own, and we must not be hypocritical and judge others as inferior, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 7, 2 states. That should give a lot of people pause. But it is not the only reason to hold out hope for those who have been judged. Instead, we must read on. And Revelation will give us this beautiful, hopeful picture. Do not end your reading here, because this is not where the book ends. Let us continue our study to see what the new Jerusalem, the born-again Israel, is like. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 25 through 27, On no day will its gates ever be shut, there will, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It is important to notice here that the gates of New Jerusalem are never shut. The only reason to leave gates open is to allow passage through them. The text tells us, in fact, that things will pass through, including the glory and honor of the nations. Is this just gold? rubies and diamonds? 
Does Israel become a materialistic entity intent on the accumulation of wealth, but uncaring toward lost souls? Has not this attitude been forcefully condemned throughout Scripture? <clears throat> what does God really treasure? Does he, does not he love the world so much that he sent Jesus to save it? Does not he search for the lost with fervor, even if only one is missing? Consider Matthew 18, verses 12 through 14. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills to go to look for that one that wandered off? And if he finds it, Truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should perish. Notice that God is not content to let anyone escape salvation. He will seek us out. He will find us, 100% of us, because that is his will. And there will be great joy. This theme is reiterated again and again. We could go to a passage, for instance, like Luke chapter 15. But I'm not going to go there because that would be, again, a study for another day. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5 states, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign for the eons of the eons. Notice the river of the water of life and the tree of life flowing through the city, and that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. If everyone is perfect, where are these healing leaves needed? There seems to be a process here. Let us examine it next. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, blessed are they who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. This is after the new Jerusalem has already descended to earth. Born again Israel is the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. They are already in the city. Who then can wash their robes and enter? It must be those who are unclean 
and therefore unable to enter before <clears throat> those who had been cast into the lake of fire. If Gehenna, translated oftentimes as hell, is symbolic of this judgment, it must be noted that Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, was geographically located right outside of Jerusalem. So the imagery is that those who are outside, the ones who will be blessed to wash their robes and enter the city, are those who are unrighteous presently, but being purified by God's consuming fire. This is confirmed in the very next verse. Revelation 22 verse 15 states, Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves the practices of falsehood. We are told exactly who can come into the city once they are purified, symbolized by the washing of their robes. These robes must be washed in Jesus' blood, as we see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. The saints have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This very imagery is used here. Jesus is the way the truth, and the life for all people. And nothing can separate humanity from his love, not even the second death. But people can't come into the city until they are purified of evil. So they remain outside until they repent and are washed in his blood. Many say this is true of Christians only. But it is true of everyone because everyone will become Christians eventually. Now, some will undoubtedly argue that I am taking passages like Romans 8, verses 38 and 39 out of context, because Paul was clearly speaking to believers. And he was, of course, speaking to believers. Specifically, he was speaking to believers in Rome. Does this mean that it does not apply to anyone else? What about future believers in different geographic locations, such as ourselves? Does not it also apply to us? Of course it does. In fact, every single book of the Bible was written to a target audience. But its truths are applied beyond the audience oftentimes. Otherwise, the Bible would be entirely irrelevant to modern people. But as we know, it is not. So while Romans 8 verses 38 and 39 are written specifically to the church in Rome, I believe it has broader applications. These applications pertain to those of us within the body of Christ. <clears throat> We've considered Israel. Now let's consider the body of Christ for a second. Consider that the text is referring to the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does God love? Does not Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 tell us that he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses? Does not Romans 5, 8 tell us that God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us? Indeed they do. 
it is then appropriate is it then appropriate to limit his love in this passage is exclusively applying to a select few who are already following him i do not believe it is one reason for this belief is the immediate context of romans chapter 8. let us take a look romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 24 state i consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope, now pay attention to this, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom in the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. So in Romans 8 itself, we see that God's plan is broader than just saving us who call upon him in the present. Instead, we see the hopeful message of redemption of all of creation which has been groaning in pain, waiting for the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Does the whole creation only refer to rocks, trees, birds, and bees? Does it not also refer to human beings, the pinnacle of his creation, who were made in his very image? Of course it does. In this I believe is why revelation ends with grace. There is nothing about us that deserves God's favor, but he loves us all in spite of our sinful ways. While we were yet sinners, even before we turned to him, and for this reason, he does not stop pursuing us, not even in death. He is love. And his love never ends. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. His love endures. It is because of his great love and grace that all people will eventually turn to him and thus be saved through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice. I really hope that you found this edition of Differing Things to be very challenging. I hope it took you out of your comfort zone. And I hope that you will diligently search the scriptures to see if the things I am saying are so.
And I trust if you do so, you will find out that they are. God does have some good news. The gospel is indeed good news to all of humanity. And let me conclude this with a question for you. If Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, did he fail in his mission or did he succeed? Think about that. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.